All right, super. I'm in Luke chapter 22, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And if you're a guest today, uh, please know that we are simply teaching the Bible. Uh, just We're taking the Bible one book at a time. We're not teaching it cover to cover, but as God leads, we're, we're teaching through the Scriptures. In fact, I'm thinking that after Easter, we will do a series called Majoring on the Minors. Uh, great time baseball starting, but it'd be a great opportunity for us to look at the minor prophets of Scripture and how those relate to us today. So that's what I'm praying toward. But we come to Luke chapter 22, verse 24. Uh, this is the night Jesus will be betrayed leading up to his crucifixion. So we're, uh, we're just, I'm just amazed that here we've been teaching in the Gospel of Luke since September of 2010. And Right now, we are in the season of Lent, which is a time in the church calendar for mourning the death of Christ. And here we are, we're right in these scriptures leading up to the resurrection. So it's looking like we're going to come to the end of Luke just in time uh, for Easter Sunday. And I'm just blown away by this, so I give glory to God. Uh, Jesus and his disciples have just shared the Last Supper together. They're reclining at the table. Jesus has, has spoken about his impending suffering and death all right so now we pick it up in verse 24 where we see also a dispute arose among them among the disciples as to which of them was considered the greatest <laughs> now you just have to stop there and say this is pretty pathetic okay if you if you go to the the last supper account in the gospel of john you will find there that before anyone sat down to eat the meal, Jesus, and despite Peter's protests, Jesus washes all the disciples' feet. And we're talking people who wore open shoes and walked everywhere they went in a desert climate. We're talking this was a servant's role. Jesus washes all their feet. He even washes the feet of the one who will betray him. He washes the feet of Judas Iscariot. And then... Uh, he sits down with him, has his meal, talks about his betrayal and death. And the next thing you know is these guys are fighting over who's going to be greatest in Jesus' coming kingdom. It, it's, a, it's a picture of the human condition and just how pathetic we really are. Oh, Jesus, you're going to suffer and die. That's nice. But hey, when you get to your kingdom, would you just kind of hold a special place of honor for me, okay? <laughs> That's really what's going on here. And uh, I think we can all relate at some point here because we all like attention. But this is actually the second time this dispute has, uh, has uh, risen between them. The first time it involved James and John, the guys who are called the, the sons of, of thunder, all right? Now, it looks like this time it might have been centered around Peter, but I'll show you that as we go. Verse 25, Jesus said to them, to the disciples, the kings of the Gentiles, the kings of the heathen, okay, you can put that word there, <laughs> those who don't even have a form of God, those guys, lord it over them, those in their jurisdiction, their, their heathen following or the heathen lower class, okay, so the kings of the heathen lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them, call themselves benefactors. Now, does this sound like Washington, D.C. or what? <laughs> you know, I mean, these politicians run for office claiming they want to be public servants. Then they get into office and they're voting themselves in all kinds of benefits. They're not public servants. They're benefactors, all right? And uh, we may even have this problem in, in many churches 
in the Western world today as well. But going on, benefactors. But you are not to be like that. So here Jesus talking to us. You are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who's serving? Who's greater, the one sitting at the table or the one serving those who are at the table? And Jesus says, is it not the one who is at the table? But I, and you could write in there, I, the Lord of the universe, (laughs) am among you as one who serves. So Jesus is saying uh, uh, that he is both sitting at the table and he's serving those among the table. He's fulfilling both roles. And there's an application right there. And that application is, church, we have got to be in the business of pushing others up. Now think about that. Get the imagery here. If you're pushing someone else up, where does that put you? Below them. And where are your eyes? Your eyes are looking up, right? Yes. So hopefully your eyes are on Jesus and you're serving out of this capacity right here. The true path to greatness is in serving. And this is, what, this is what Jesus wants us to see. But the awesome thing about the God of the universe and the God that we serve is that he never asks us to do anything that he himself is not willing to do. He doesn't ask us to do anything that he himself hasn't already done and i can't think of a better picture than philippians chapter 2 you can look at it later but just highlighting a few things he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant and became obedient to death even death on the cross and the result was he was exalted to the highest place and given the name that is at uh, that is above every name and then it goes on that at the name of jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess to the glory of God that Jesus Christ is Lord. This whole idea that the God of the universe would humble himself and become a servant is just fascinating to me, especially as you consider the contrast of that. The Greek word is doulos, which literally means slave. And if you were in a caste system, it would mean that you would assume the position of the lowest of the lowest in that system, okay? No worth of your own, but only subject to what everybody else thinks that you should be doing or limited to to what everybody else thinks that you should have, okay? This is what we're talking about right here. Now, contrast that with the heart of Satan, okay? The devil, the enemy, Okay, the opposer. Isaiah gives us his heart when, when the devil says, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. See, Satan's looking for position here. In fact, when he tempted Eve, his temptation was rooted in that. When he said to her, God knows that the day you eat of it, the day you eat that forbidden fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Hey, Eve. <laughs> Do you want to know how to reduce God down to your level so that you have the capacity of oppressing the very one who would lay down his life for you? Eat the fruit. This is what he's talking about. This is what it's rooted in. But Jesus says this. In fact, I want you to read it with me. This is Matthew chapter 20, starting with verse 26. Let's read it together. Whoever wants to become great among you. Wait, hold on, hold on. 
I know you had to get up early today. In fact, why don't you just take a deep breath, fill your lungs for a moment, all right? All right, inhale and exhale. All right. Yeah. Do you need to loosen up your uh, larynx a little bit? La, la, la. I thought we did that in song already. All right. Let, let's, let's read the words of Jesus now together with a little bit of air, can we? All right. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That was much, much, much better. But we read this, and it sounds so simple, yet frankly, I mean, we can make all kinds of promises and say, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to serve. But when it comes down to it, it's very difficult. Are you kidding me? You want me to serve? I mean, what if they don't serve me back? Or what if they actually like me serving them? Huh? And what if they use that to kind of keep me down and keep me oppressed? Well, if they do that, welcome to the kingdom of your Lord, who subjected himself to others. That's the way they treated Jesus. But when you understand this, and this is what it has to be rooted in, and this is Jesus' understanding, is it has to be rooted in the conviction of who you are in Christ. It has to be rooted in the sure confidence, the, 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 the deep down conviction that you have a significant place in the kingdom of God and that, that your eternity looks really good. It's rooted in this. You are a child of the king. You are an heir to the throne. Okay, that's what you serve out of. You are a greatly loved child of the king, and you are a greatly loved child of the king who has a heavenly father who would and who did lay his life down for you. So serving isn't this idea that you think less of yourself, but rather that you think of yourself less. Okay? That's the God that we serve. It's rooted in the confidence of who you are in Christ. And if you really want to see what a true believer looks like, a true believer isn't measured by how much scripture he can quote. A true believer isn't measured by how many times he shows up at church when the doors are open. A true believer isn't measured by how many people he's influencing. But a true believer is measured by his willingness to lay his life down to push others up. Being in the business of pushing others up. Verse 28. You are those, talking to his disciples, carrying on, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, some want to read that and talk about, okay, 12 disciples, 12 tribes. That's not the idea here. What Jesus wants them to understand is they don't have to worry about significance because each of them will come to a place where they will be called to lay down their lives for the kingdom of God. And because they are situated in that posture of even being able to lay down their lives for the kingdom of God, because of the grace that's at work in them and not because they're tough guys, Because of that, they have significant places in the kingdom. So they don't need to talk about that or worry about that. This is what's going on here. Okay, now in verse 31, Jesus is going to make Peter an example 
of a servant. And what better guy? I mean, Peter's, you know, traditionally we understand him to be this big, tough fisherman guy, right? We all love him because you know, he's kind of impulsive, but in his impulsiveness, you know, he tends to get himself out there and his mistakes are, are just out there for everybody to see. And so we like that because it's like, wow, this guy lives his weaknesses right on, the, right on his shirt pocket, you know. And we like this. This is, this, is, this is Peter right here. So Jesus turns to him and he says, now notice, he goes back to Peter's old name. He doesn't call him Rock here. He says, Simon. Twice, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you. And that word you right there is in a plural form. So Jesus is talking to all the disciples with that you. And then he turns specifically to Peter and he says, okay, Satan wants to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, singular Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, now that's a cool word right there, turn back, because that word, turn back, is the word convert. And what Jesus is saying right there, Peter, when the faith you profess has truly come alive in your spirit, so that you are operating in the and full understanding of the things of God and not your own flesh and your own abilities, right? When you have converted, then look what he calls them to do. In fact, read those words out of your Bible. What does it say? Strengthen your brothers. That's your task. In the church, we're so consumed with how we can become holy people. But friends, we need to be consumed with how we can build one another up. And leave the other part up to God. It's his miracle. So this word Simon, this name Simon. You know, I wonder. This is what caused me to wonder if at this point, Peter's the guy in the center of this debate over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, Peter, you're operating out of your flesh. Or, or maybe not that, but maybe what Jesus is doing, you know, he's talking about Peter's soon coming death. And he, death for Christ, but he knows that after Christ dies, that Peter will fall away. And Peter's going to go back to fishing. And Peter's not going to exemplify this new name, this name Petros, which means rock, because he's going to flounder here. And so Jesus is saying to him, I'm calling you by your old nature, because this is what you're soon going to live up to. Okay, Jesus prophesying Peter's falling away but when peter is truly born into the kingdom his assignment will be push others up right strengthen your brothers so two applications here one we need to be about pushing others up we've already talked about that that is our assignment love your neighbor as yourself you know you need to be pushed up god is calling you to push others up but the second part of this there comes a time for each of us that our faith has to get beyond a tradition that's been passed down to us. It has to get beyond the fact that we're American and therefore we have to be Christian. It has to get beyond the idea that maybe your parents were believers. And it has to come down to this place, where are you? Where are you in your relationship with God? Because if we're not careful, 
your experience with the living God will become your son's tradition, which ultimately will become your grandson's nuisance, and they'll have nothing to do with it. You need the power of God to come alive in you. I think one of the greatest things you all appreciated Chloe sharing last week, but man, away at Thailand, worst red light districts of the world, trying to figure out how to reach people, and it was there that Chloe said, I realize I can't live off your faith, but it has to be my faith, okay? And uh, that's, this is what we're talking about. Do you really know him, or is it just a form, something you do, because you've always done it? He wants you to know him, desire it, seek him earnestly. This is what it's all about. Verse, uh, well, let me first say, Peter doesn't want to hear any of this business that Jesus is talking about where Peter's going to fall away. And this takes us to verse 33. Peter replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. What Peter's problem is here is that he doesn't understand the magnitude of the battle that he's going to soon be facing. And he doesn't understand that between Peter and Satan, Peter always loses. And he thinks he's going to be this tough guy who's going to measure up, and he's going to end up falling. And it brings me to this point of conviction, having been a youth pastor all of my ministry until we came here. How many times we've taken teenagers to conventions and to camps and got them to make all sorts of promises to God, you know? And then we as youth pastors, we come back home and say, they were so fired up with, at camp, what happened? And it's like God has given us this amazing example in Peter that, listen, all your determination and energy that you express anywhere, I don't care if it's at camp or a, con- or a convention or whatever, it's not going to carry you. <laughs> There's got to be a walk with God. We need his help. Going on, verse 34, Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me, th- you, you will uh, deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Look at that word lack there. Do you see that? That word is better translated timely provisions. Were you not provided for in a timely fashion? You know, that's one of the most frustrating things about walking with God is we know when we need something. It's just God doesn't know when we need things. Huh? Yeah. But when you learn to walk with God, then it's at that point you begin to discover that God's timing is actually better than your timing for a couple of reasons. He'll bring it right at the right time, and in the course of that, he's going to teach you that he is really in control. So timely provisions. Jesus is talking about the time he sent them out in groups of 12 and in 72, you know, the two by two. He sent them out. He said, don't take anything with you. You'll provide it, be provided for along the way. So he says, were you not provided for in a timely way to which they, did you lack anything? And to which they respond, nothing. And so he said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. So here's talking about Jesus. You see this? Jesus treated as a common criminal. Jesus says he was treated, he was uh, numbered with the transgressors, transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. So... Jesus talking about the purpose for his coming. He came to die. He's talking about that being fulfilled right here. 
The disciples really don't understand what's going on. They know it's not good. It's kind of going to wear on them at this point. But the reality is that everything that they've been enjoying and everything that they've been experiencing is about to change. And Jesus is saying, if they'll arrest me, and they will, you better believe they will arrest you. If they would treat me like a common criminal, and they will, you better believe they will treat you like a common criminal. And in saying what to bring, he's telling them, be prepared for what is coming. Because before, when I sent you out to do ministry, at that point, Jesus is saying, I was a popular rabbi. People treated you with respect. People gave you the things that you needed. People treated you with appreciation. But when it becomes clear to them that I am not going to do things the way that the general population thinks I should, and when it becomes clear to them that I'm not going to overthrow the Roman government at this point and free them from Roman oppression, at that point they will turn on you. They may, be, they may have cried out Hosanna on Sunday, but by tomorrow they will be crying crucify him. That's what's going on right Jesus' most crucial hour, that little baby in the manger that we love to celebrate at Christmas time came for one purpose and one purpose only. He came as the lamb without blemish so that he could be sacrificed for the sins of the world. He didn't stay there, or he wasn't born there to remain a baby. He was born there to become the lamb who would die to take away your sins and to give you hope of future glory. You know, today, if, if you're a believer, you are an alien in foreign soil. And you're in very, very dangerous turf here. Your ideas, the things that you understand about the kingdom and kingdom values, they are not the kingdom values that are upheld here on earth. It just blows me away how many times Christians act shocked by the decisions that are made in our world or on a national level or on a state level and, and decisions that even seem anti-Christian and they wonder how on earth could anybody make these kind of decisions. But to bring it to that type of a question is to deny that there is a distinction between those things that are of God and those things that are of the world. The world's only operating as it should be. Now, mind you, there have been times in history when Christian influence has been stronger than it is today, but that's not the norm. It's not the norm, and we shouldn't impose on things, things that we, on, on people things that we are coming to understand, but instead we should love them and be light to them in order that they might be drawn to the Christ as well. Verse 38, the disciple said, See, Lord, here are two swords. They're really not getting this. And Jesus says, that is enough. Now, you read that and you think two swords are enough, right? But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying two swords are enough. He's saying, drop it. Let's move on to something else. You guys really aren't understanding this. Let's just put this away. I mean, are you guys honestly thinking that the mob that's going to come and arrest me here in just a little bit, that you're going to take them on with two swords? And you're wanting freedom from Roman oppression? Do you really think that we, along with two swords, are going to conquer the Roman government? Is that what you really think? And what Jesus is wanting his disciples to know is I'm not talking about swords of the world. I'm talking about swords that represent the power of God that are rooted in the word of God 
put forth with power. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, they didn't get it here, but they will later. And that's why we have expressions like Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Okay, I had to spend some time on Ephesians chapter 6. Look at this, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Going to verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then. Now look at verse uh, 17 because this is what I wanted you to see here. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. So we're not talking about weapons of men. We're not talking about having uh, um, all your physical provisions being taken care of ahead of time. But Jesus is saying, be ready for what is to come. He's talking about, be ready in your spirit. Be, be equipped with the things of God. That's what he's talking to his disciples about here. Verse 39. <clears throat> Jesus <clears throat> went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. Now, it's, notice it says as usual because every night now, Jesus has been going to the Mount of Olives to pray. So he goes there as usual. This is how Judas knows exactly where to take these authorities who will arrest Jesus. He says, And his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. Now, he's going to say that twice. Pray that you will not fall into temptation. That is a good prayer to pray. Okay? When I talk about prayer, it's not the number one thing that comes to our minds, but it's one that you need to program in your minds. Pray that you will not fall into temptation. When Jesus taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer, he said, pray these words. And one of them were, was, lead us not into temptation. There's a reason for that. The reason is, is you will never defeat temptation by determination. But you will only defeat temptation in prayer. Okay? That's the only way. But the disciples, they're not going to hear this. In fact, the disciples are going to fall asleep at this most crucial hour. And because they're going to fall asleep at this most crucial hour, when the time comes to stand, they will not be able to stand. All right? Going on. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. You know, that's a great prayer. Not my will, but yours be done. Oh, that we would all own this prayer. You know, Lord, I don't want what I want. I want what you want. I surrender all of my wishes, all of my desires. I surrender them to understanding what it is you created me for. That's what I want, Lord. I want what you created me for. I want your plans for my life, not my, not my plans for my life. That's a valuable prayer. I think we'd all agree, right? I mean, it sounds noble. Not my will, but your will be done. But that's not enough to help us understand what it is that Jesus is praying here. Because when Jesus prays this prayer, what he's saying 
has to do with the redemption of mankind. And Jesus is saying, Father, if the hope for mankind can be obtained by any other means, then let's do that. If the salvation of mankind could be obtained any other way, Father, let's do that. Well, it's going to play out exactly like Jesus knows it would because it's been prophesied. There's only one way. Yet isn't it sad that still today people are debating what was settled in the garden so long ago? And people want to say, no, 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 the cross is way too narrow. It doesn't matter what you believe. Just believe anything. Just have faith in something. And it's always thing, 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 like even an idol will do. Put your faith in something. It doesn't matter what you believe. It only matters that you believe. But friends, the debate was settled right here in the garden. If there were any other way, our Heavenly Father would have never have allowed His Son to go to the cross. And Jesus is crying out with ever-increasing intensity here, Father, are you sure there is no other way? And Jesus has to look at His Son and say, there is no other way. This is it. And hear it, friends. The only way to come back into a living, vital relationship with your Heavenly Father is through the cross, through the death of Jesus Christ. Now, I realize this may offend you, but my job here isn't to keep you happy. My job is to speak truth to the best that I understand it. And for me to deny this would, den- would be to deny the very thing, the, the highest price, price that God has ever paid for anyone right here. You're not going to obtain eternal life by, by, by uh, comparing yourself to somebody else and saying, I'm better than them. You're not going to obtain eternal life because of the good things you're, you're, you're doing. You're not going to obtain eternal life because you've bought into some form of religion that makes you feel good, even if it's only one day of the week or gets you started on Monday. Those things are not going to save you because the Bible is clear. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Is it narrow? Yes, it's narrow, but please never forget, it's a gift. Never forget it's a gift. And, and you don't open gifts saying, well, that's nice, but I'd prefer something else. You just accept the gift. And that's what this is. Verse 43. An angel from heaven appeared to Jesus and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Dr. Luke is the only one who tells us about this attending angel. Dr. Luke is the only one who talks about these great droplets of of blood. Uh, This has been proven scientifically. Emotional stress can actually uh, rupture your sweat glands, causing a mixture of sweat and blood to be produced together. But Luke emphasizes these were great drops of blood in the original language. It says, when he rose from prayer, he went back to the disciples. He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. They know something bad is happening. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. 
Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And then right here, Matthew adds Jesus' words. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now that word flesh there isn't the word from which we get carnage. Okay, this isn't flesh and blood. It's a different word. It's the word sarks, which means human nature. In your spirit, you're willing, but your human nature doesn't have the capacities. Okay, but he's telling them, wake up. Get up. In the last 300 years of Christendom, there have been these moments called Great Awakenings. The first Great Awakening in the 1700s, preachers like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, John Wesley, having huge impact in America and in Europe. Great move of God, Great Awakening. 1800s, Second Great Awakening, involving Peter Cartwright, Charles Finney, largely in the United States. There have been many small awakenings of God throughout history. But if you're going to have an awakening, you first must have something that has fallen asleep. And God wants us to know that the problem of God's people falling asleep has been a problem ever since the days of Jesus' first disciples. And if you look at Jesus' words to them, it only appears that we have one of two options. Either we will be about the business of praying, or we will be about the business of slipping and falling away. When Jesus told the parable of the persistent widow, Luke introduces it with these words. Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. The words there could be faint or lose heart. And what this tells us is only one of two possibilities. Either you will be about the business of praying or you will be about fainting, losing heart, falling away. This is what's clear right here in the scriptures. We make these commitments of the great things we're going to do for God and then we walk away and we find ourselves falling into the same old stuff over and over again. And when we talk about prayer, the church is somehow programmed to totally miss what this prayer is all about. We think that it's about how long you stay on your knees or having these words to say about all this stuff and we get tripped up and wonder why we fall asleep whenever we kneel down to pray. But what we need to understand is that prayer is nothing more than a recognition of how dependent you must be on the living God. And when you realize how dependent you are on the living God, it's then that you begin to see his hand working so that expressions like thanksgiving and praise become natural. Because I'm depending on him, I'm seeing his hand at work in my life. That's all that prayer is. It's not having the right words. It's having the right relationship. Do you know him? Does he know you? Do you just have a form of God and no relationship? God wants to know you and he wants you to know him. And he says, how's your prayer life? How's your time with me? Start there. I have everything that you need to experience victory, to experience provision, to experience wisdom, to experience protection. I am your sufficiency and your strength. And if you will hear him, he says to you and he says to me, get up, wake up. Just closing with this. Romans 12. 
Romans 13, verse 11, excuse me. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. Man, what a perfect Sunday. The day we lose an hour of sleep and we're a little dopey. Wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. That, my friends, is the word of God. Would you just take a moment between yourself and God and consider these things? Why did he bring you here? What it is he wants you to know? Just take a moment. It's going to be quiet, but just consider these things.